Well, we get back into the series of uh, the Beatitudes, and we wind up in the Peacemakers part. Probably one of my favorite ones, because uh, me being a peacemaker at heart, I, I love, love it when there's harmony and unity and peace. It's been a difficult two years for me, but uh, with all the strife and everything going on around us and, and uh, uh, social media and everything else that causes us just to kind of get uptight. But uh, this, this beatitude would speak to my heart quite a bit, and uh, as far as being blessed, uh, being called the sons of God. In a world which encourages us to be competitive and aggressive, to achieve great things, uh, Jesus calls us to seek peace in our relationships. Jesus came to bring that peace and to restore the relationship between man and God. Of course, we realize that. But when we seek to bring peace and restore relationships, we are following His example. And as followers of Christ, we need to be following His example. If we claim to be followers of Christ, we will do what He, he says and we will follow what He, he does. But we live in a world characterized by fighting and rivalry, from sibling rivalry to civil war. We see the effects of this animosity at every level of society. And it's everywhere. And if you don't believe me, just get on social media and see how much animosity and fighting and rivalry is, is out there. Something I believe has been exasperated by the last two years of our life experience. All of us are, are, are predispossessed in, 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 a, in a conflict attitude. We, are, we, we tend to lean that way in getting into conflict. Some of us have clashed with so many people that we don't know how to live peaceably with others. And especially, I, I, I hate to harp on this, but really, the last couple of years, for some reason, we just had our ire up, and anybody that looks cross-eyed at us, we just want to tell them a thing or two, give them a piece of our mind. But I, I, the thing is, is that uh, we need to step back and think, is this worth it? Do we really need to get so upset? Where's the peace that needs to be given from those who follow Christ? I've known some people that can't seem to be happy unless they're fighting with others. They just want to be in conflict. History reveals that most peacekeeping efforts, by and large, have failed. In fact, nearly 4,000 years of recorded history, the world has been at peace a total of only 286 years, <laughs> including over 8,000 treaties made and broken. One person said, peace is merely that, that brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stops to reload. <laughs> Now, peace can be very elusive. One moment you, you can have peace at home or at work or, or in your relationships, and the next it's gone. And just think about the last time in your family context how things were peaceable and then how fast that switched over and, and what happened, how come, what, what's going on, where's the peace? The fact that the lack of peace is so widespread, though, is nothing new. We can trace it back to the book of Genesis. Humans have, have been at war with God ever since Adam and Eve sinned, and beginning with the conflict between Cain and Abel, which, of course, eventually led to one brother killing the other. We've been in a battle with one another ever since. So when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he totally shocked those around him. 
How could the Jews hope to overthrow Rome and restore their nation to a place of prominence if they were going to have to be peacemakers? The Romans weren't going to just lie down and let Israel have their way. So it's within this context that Jesus promised to bless the people who'd become his agents for peace, saying that the the peacemaker would be called the Son of God. This means that every Christian, according to this beatitude, is responsible to being a peacemaker in their home, in their church, in their community, in, in their nation, and ultimately, of course, the world. So within those relationships, you need to be seeking peace, being that peacemaker. Warren Worsby said, hatred looks for a victim while love seeks a victory. The man of war throws stones and the peacemaker builds a bridge out of those stones. We need to be builders. (laughs) We need to be builders in the peacemaking. Peacemakers serving in the name of Jesus will strive to restore relationships that have been broken by sin. And Jesus restores us to God by doing this, and He calls us to to strive to do the same same sort of thing on the level we operate at and, and in the relationships we are in. Jesus expanded the meaning of, of peacemaking later on in this chapter, uh, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at a couple passages here, which I trust will help us understand what it means to bring peace into our relationships with others. So if you haven't yet, you can turn to Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, we're going to skip past the Beatitudes and get to verse 38. And you can look there and wait there for a moment as we uh, continue on here, but we're going to camp out in this area of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 38. And as you turn there, I'm reminded of a story about a despondent woman who was walking along the beach when she saw a bottle in the sand, and she picked it up and pulled out the cork, and a big puff of smoke appeared. You have released me from my prison, the genie told her. To show my thanks, I grant you three wishes. But take care, for with each wish, your mate will receive double of whatever you request. Well, why, the woman insisted. That bum left me for another woman. Well, that's how it's written, replied the genie. And so the woman shrugged and then asked for a million dollars. There was a flash of light and a million dollars appeared at her feet. At the same instant, in a far off place, her wayward husband looked down to see twice that amount at his feet. And your second wish, the genie asked. Well, genie, I I want the world's most expensive diamond necklace. So another flash of light, and the woman was holding the the precious treasure in her hands. And in that distant place, her husband was looking for a gem broker to buy his latest bonanza of, of gems. Genie, she asked, is it really true that my husband has $2 million and more jewels than I do, and and that he gets double of whatever I wish for? The genie said it was indeed true. Okay, genie, the woman said, I'm ready for my last wish. Scare me half to death. (laughs) Revenge is a universal connecting point between people. Simply put, it's getting back at someone for a wrong they have committed against you. I remember at Camp Mayfield, being a counselor there, uh, the guys, almost on the first night in in the cabin group, was, can we do a prank on someone? We want to do a prank on the guys over there, or we want to do a prank on the girls. 
And I'd say, well, okay, yeah, that's fine, I guess, but just be aware, they're going to retaliate, and they're going to get you back, and then you'll want to get them back, and they'll get you back, and pretty soon it's going to escalate to the point where you, you wish you didn't start this in the first place, in the beginning of it all, because um, it will get out of hand. It usually does. A kid knocks another kid down in the playground. The victim gets up and proceeds to knock the instigator down. Vengeance is served, right? When we get bad service at a restaurant, lash out at the waiter or waitress, vengeance is served. When we get cut off in traffic and proceed to retaliate with some aggressive driving towards the offender, <laughs> vengeance is served. When a coworker gossips about us, and then we tell others a few juicy tidbits about that coworker. Vengeance is served. And it's all in the spirit of keeping the score even. I don't get mad, I get even. Did you know that revenge is never condoned in the Bible? Never? Now, you might think, oh, wait, Pastor, wasn't there that time where uh, the Amalekites were finally wiped out by the Israelites because of what they did way back when? And the promise is going to come through, and, and, and so the Israelites got revenge. And I would say, well, yeah, that did happen, but, you know, God took vengeance. <laughs> God did that. God used the people and had them lead into war against them and wipe them out. It was God's vengeance and His wrath. In fact, it, 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 it kind of coincides with Romans chapter 12. We looked at that in Sunday school uh, today. But in the last part of that chapter, verse 17, begin with verse 17, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And also in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But the leaders of, of Jesus' day, and many people since then, <laughs> had found a way to justify revenge through the concept of what we see here in the portion of Scripture in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, the concept of an eye for an eye. And this principle comes from the Old Testament and was in the law laid down by God through Moses and upheld uh, in Israel right up to the day of Christ. But it was never meant to justify revenge. Instead, it is intended to guarantee justice for all. The phrase eye for eye and tooth for tooth comes up three times in the law, and each time it is associated with someone who had caused another harm. In Exodus chapter 21, it protects the rights of the pregnant woman. If men were fighting nearby and caused, uh, caused uh, uh, injury to that woman, the man is responsible for the one who is responsible, the man who is to receive punishment equal to the harm he caused that woman. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And this is to protect the woman's rights for safety. Men would have to be very careful around women, or they would be subject to this kind of judgment. In Leviticus chapter 24, it's a simple formula. If a man is found guilty of killing another, he is to lose his life as well. Wow, pretty severe. 
The same principle is applied to those who injure others. If you break someone's arm, yours is to be broken too. Yikes. And anyone who causes the death of someone's livestock is to lose the same number of livestock. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, the principle is applied to those who lie, lie under oath. So if a man lies about another man's actions, he is to be punished with the same crime that he lied about. So for example, if he lied about the accused stealing two heads of cattle, then the liar is to receive the punishment for stealing two heads of cattle. That seems to probably would have worked really well in parenting, right? <laughs> they lied about that, then they get punished for that, uh, that they lied about their brother or sister. Now, this principle of eye for eye had, had two purposes. One, it ensured that the guilty party was held accountable for his crime. They weren't going to get away with it. And secondly, it also protected the guilty from any kind of vendettas or vigilante justice going on, because that was going on. That was happening. Ever since people have walked the face of the earth, they have tried to get away with crimes without facing consequences. And this principle uh, of eye for an eye was meant to show all the Israelites and those who lived with them that God demands equal justice for all, no matter what their status in life. But eye for an eye also protects the offender from the hostility of those he victimized. In many societies, it's entirely acceptable for the family of the victim to go after the accused and give whatever form of punishment they see fit. That might have some appeal, maybe, in our culture of seemingly light punishment for some monstrous crimes. But people have proven to be very poor judges of what is an acceptable consequence for a criminal act. Take, for instance, uh, uh, in some societies, they'll remove the hand of a boy caught stealing bread or an apple. Yikes, that's a little overkill. Or other societies will lock up members of one race longer than members of another race for committing a similar, uh, similar crime. And still other societies will execute women caught in adultery and do nothing about the man who is with her. So no matter where we come from, we seem to live with an inability to give an appropriate consequence for crimes. So God laid down a very simple principle to work with, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And unfortunately, once people got a hold of it, they found a way to pervert it and end up using it as a vehicle for revenge. So Jesus, addressing the people being victimized by this perversion of the law, saw the need for people to step back from where the concept of, of eye, and, eye for an eye had been used in society. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, it says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. In Jesus' teaching, not only are we to stop seeking revenge, but we are also supposed to give up our right to the benefit that this principle, eye for an eye, gives us. Jesus gives three examples here in this portion of Scripture to explain what He means. And each of the examples given by Jesus reflect a different perspective on how a victim should react to an attack on Him. Each example also, too, has a deeper lesson for us to learn from. So if you look at verse 39, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, if someone strikes you on the, cheek, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So in the first example, the person struck on the right cheek is to turn his left cheek 
to the one striking them. Now, when someone struck another person, they most often used the right hand. And to strike the right cheek with the right hand requires a person to use the back of their hand coming through. And this type of blow was considered very humiliating for the victim, being slapped for the back of the hand. And turning the left cheek to the offender seems to be asking for more of the same, but actually it changes the relationship between the two. The victim may still be weaker, but to be struck on the left cheek now requires the offender to use the front of his hand or his fist. It doesn't sound like good news, does it? But in Jesus' time, this was how someone struck out at a person of equal status. So in turning the cheek, the victim causes the offender to recognize him as a person and not some kind of dog to be beaten or a horse to be whipped. So elevates that person's status with that, that person who's <laughs> slapping. And then in, in verse 40, says, and if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So when we get dressed, we put on our first layer of clothes, the shirts, the pants, socks, and all this sort of thing. This is the equivalent of the tunic in verse 40. And when we go outside, we add another layer of clothing, sweaters, jackets, rain gear. Not these days, but typically in the wintertime, probably more rain gear is needed. And uh, we, we do that. And this would be the same as the cloak. And in those days, a man could be sued for his tunic, but the law drew the line at the man's cloak, the garment worn over the tunic. This allowed the man to, to at least have something to wear, not only for his dignity, but also for his survival. And behind this example is the idea of returning even more than what is required when we are found to be in debt to others. So Jesus is calling us to be people who actively make restitution for our debts, and then go even farther. As in the concept of turn the other cheek, Jesus' teaching causes the perception of the victim to be changed. Instead of being an unsuccessful defendant, they are now seeking the best they can to, to, to the other person. They, they go from trying to avoid responsibility to making a personal sacrifice. And if the accused is not actually guilty of the lawsuit, this effect is even more amplified. When Christians are trapped by unfair treatment, they can yell, they can fight like everyone else, or they can turn the tables by moving into a relationship where they are actually giving assistance to those who would hurt them. <laughs> That's easily said, but a lot harder to do, especially if we are the ones being treated unfairly. It's a lot easier and our right to yell, it's not fair. Not fair what's going on. They always do this to Christians, right? But there will always be situations where we get trapped by unfair treatment. And Jesus is showing us how to make something good out of it. Life's not fair. If you haven't been told that yet, talk to Susan. She'll let you know. <laughs> Life's not fair. She'll tell you the truth. But we always have a choice of how we react to unfairness. Things are going to happen. How do you react to it? And then the third example here in verse 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In the days of Jesus, the Roman soldier had the right to force a civilian to carry the soldier's luggage. It would be his pack and his belongings. 
and it was for one Roman mile. This Roman mile was about a thousand paces of about five feet each. Now, uh, 5,280 feet are in a mile, so it's almost a regular mile, but not quite. The soldiers were given this, this right, so they wouldn't get worn out traveling with all their gear. And yet they, they were restrained by the limit of the one mile in order that those forced into service wouldn't be overly abused. But still, being forced to carry their gear was, was quite humiliating. People forced into this service most likely felt um, ill will toward the soldiers. Why do I have to do this for you? You can do it yourself. But Jesus is telling us to take this kind of assault on ourselves and turn it into an opportunity to, to do a good deed. When someone decides to go the extra mile, they are using their freedom to choose. And again, the relationship between the two people changes. The taskmaster now becomes the object of the victim's will. He still believe, he still, that, that, that taskmaster still benefits from the other's efforts, but the victim is a victim no longer. This extra mile concept goes far beyond luggage carrying, though. We all have relationships in which we are expected to do certain things. The husband and wife relationship, the, the, the teacher-student relationship, the, the neighbor-to-neighbor relationship, and the employee-to-employer relationship. Jesus is telling us that we have the power to make an obligation into an opportunity. And we can take a chore and turn it into a, a service given voluntarily if we are willing to go the extra mile. And then verse 42, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So after these three examples that Jesus gives here, He then tells us to not hesitate to lend to those who ask and to give to those in need. Now, you might wonder, um, what relation does giving and borrowing have with being hit and being sued or, or being put to work unfairly. But if you look at these things as a progression, in three sentences, we, he has walked us, us listeners through being assaulted, being sued, being inconvenienced, and now being borrowed and begged from. In a sense, all these, all these examples are attacks on us as people being hit with a fist or with a lawsuit, both hurt deeply in different ways. But nobody likes being put to work unfairly. And we usually do, do not like people asking for money from us, whether as a gift or as a loan. It inconveniences us a bit. And any of, the, any of these situations can lead us into a spirit in which we actively seek the worst for the other person. I hope that guy doesn't come around again. He's just going to ask me for money. And we want to hit back. We want to counter-sue. We, we want to make the other party work harder. Tell the beggar to get a job. <laughs> Tell the borrower to put their hands in someone else's pocket. Get out of mine. But Jesus tells us to do something different. When we, are, when we are in situations seeking revenge toward a person who is intruding on our life, we are to react in a way that makes things better, not worse. Now, if you continue in that chapter 5, the next section, we're going to look at that real quick as well too, verses 43 through 48. Let me read the first uh, few verses there, starting with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. We'll stop right there for a moment. This is one of the the most well-known teachings of Jesus, that we shouldn't hate but rather love our enemies. As with the previous passage, he starts off with a commonly held assumption that God wants us to to, to love those around us, our neighbors, but hate our enemies. And again, he is dealing with a concept that had become perverted by society at large. It is very true that God teaches us to love your neighbor. We read it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And this very command is repeated by Jesus himself as one of the two foundations for the entire code of of law under God. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Things we follow, I trust, daily. But nowhere does it say in Scripture to hate your enemies. This was added to the command by, by the Pharisees, the leaders of the day. They believed that the people's hatred of their enemies was God's way of judging those who opposed them. So in doing this, they justified their hatred toward their opponents by saying it was God judging evil through them. We still do this today. When we take something we don't like and then justify our hate of that thing or that maybe that person by saying God hates it too. It's not the first or last time that humans have tried to, to sit in God's judgment seat or use God's judgment as an excuse for their own prejudices. You remember the Westboro Baptist Church from Topeka, Kansas? Prime example of this practice with their judgmental signs and protests and screaming at the LGBTQ community. They're going to hell. God hates them. We have white supremacist groups that use God to justify their racism and and incorporate Christian rituals into their awful practices. These are just a few examples of a terrible practice that should make us Christians everywhere sick, disgusted. For God never called us to hate our enemies. And He certainly never asked us to use His name to justify our prejudices. And in contrary to this practice, Jesus comes right out and says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We should bless them, not curse them. Jesus is calling us to stop hating those who are against us and start loving them. When we do this, we we behave as His children, imitating the love that God has for all of mankind. And just to make sure that we get the point, He quickly gives three situations to think about in this portion of Scripture. Look at verse 45. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. First fact Jesus shares is how God causes it to rain and shine on on everyone, regardless of whether or not they love Him. Those who love God will get sunny periods, snow flurries, rainstorms, hurricanes, all the sorts. And so too will those who hate Him. Now this analogy can be applied to any area of life. The financial part of your life, the spiritual intellect, the physical in all things, there will be times of ease and times of hardship. It will happen. doesn't matter if you love God or not. These things are going to happen. Now, if God is willing to allow everybody equal treatment and opportunity, shouldn't we imitate Him and do the same? Giving equal treatment to people around us? So that's Jesus' first point. 
And in verse 46, he gives another example. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the ta- are not even the tax collectors doing that? <laughs> so after this statement, Jesus then makes two comparisons that are designed to really get at the self-righteous attitudes of the leaders of the day. The first one addresses our inclination to show love to those who love us back. That's pretty easy to do. It's a natural reaction to love those who show love to us. We're made that way. Love is a reciprocal thing. So when someone shows us love in some way, we should be inclined to show it back. Someone gives you a hug, you go ahead, you give it, unless you're not someone who likes to hug or whatever. But you show love in some way, and that person is going to show love right back to you. But the leaders were so proud of themselves because they did so many good deeds that these deeds were done for those who showed them the respect and admiration they craved. They boasted of of these good deeds. They they thought and taught the more deeds, the better. And Jesus takes their pride and compares them to the class of people that they would have despised the most, (laughs) the tax collectors. Jesus is saying that you can be as nice to your friends as you like, but this doesn't make you any better than those you despise the most. The tax collectors were a good example to use because everybody hated them. The class of tax collector he is speaking of here were were local people, former friends, neighbors, those who had agreed to help the Romans collect taxes. They were considered traitors by those that they by those that they collected from. And they were also despised because of the contact they had with the outsiders. Jesus couldn't have picked a group of people who the leaders would hate more. And to be compared to them would have been intolerable. Couldn't stand it. But of course, Jesus was right. Showing love to those who love us is a good thing, but it doesn't make you any better than anyone else. Jesus knew that. And he knew that the real test of love was to show it to those who won't show it back. That is a test, and one that he showed us how to pass with an A+. Jesus spent 33 years living among those who didn't always show him the love he deserved. And then he gave his very life for each and every one of us, regardless of how we, we felt about him at the time. Remember the words he said while hanging on the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus passed the test of loving those who did not love Him, and in doing so, He left us an example to follow. And then the third example He shows here in verse 47, And if you greet, any, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So showing love can be as, as much as a simple hello, As you pass by someone on the street, a greeting is a sign of acknowledgement. When someone says hello to you, they are showing that at least they care enough to acknowledge you as a person, that you're there, they notice you, and most often, that's good enough. We don't need to be swamped with gushing affection every time someone passes by. (laughs) We'd end up hiding in our homes for fear of being smothered with affection, especially those uh, introverts that (laughs) don't want to be around people too much. But now as God's people, do you think we should get brownie points for greeting each other with a warm hello? How many people did you greet at church today? All right, good job. Another jewel in your crown, I guess. You don't have to be a Christian 
to say, hello, how are you? <laughs> Almost everyone does that. And this is the point Jesus makes. Giving a friend a warm handshake is good, but it's no better than anyone else. If you want to begin to know what love is, show some of that love to someone who you can't stand. And start with a simple hello. This starting point works on all kinds of man-made barriers. I myself have, I can recall a situation where I was also, too, at odds with someone. No one here at the church, don't worry. And that person, I, I just couldn't be around because they just gave me frustrated thoughts. <laughs> and then one day I figured, well, there's the person. I can't avoid them. Walked by and all I did was say, hello, using their name. And that was all. And that was a big step. And from there on, things were going to get a little easier. Then I'd be able to be around the person. Then I'd be able to say hi. Then I'd be able to talk with them. It's the progression. It's showing love. Does hello always, always work? <laughs> not, not always. It's not magic. But it's where we start. You want to start at a place of, of, of trying to show love to someone you just can't stand or you can't be with or you just, ugh. Start with saying hi. Start with hello. Start with how are you. And then after sharing his examples of loving those who oppose us, Jesus ends this whole chapter with nine words which just don't seem fair. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> what? It's one of those lines that causes us to respond, easy for you to say, Jesus. You had a bit of a head start on us there. But after trying to get us to love those who may not love us back, you would think that he would come up with something easier than that. But this calling isn't meant to bring us down. He has spent this chapter encouraging and commanding us to be distinct from those around us. The leaders of the day had the appearance of perfection down to an art. They knew what to do. They, they knew how to look. They dressed right. They acted right. They thought they were right. But inside, they were more lost than the prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus has finished a set of commands which boil down to one thing, being the real thing. So how can we be perfect? You can be perfect in character. In this life, we can't be flawless in performance. We, we don't have the perfect mind and, and knowledge to be able to do that. But we can aim to be as much like Christ as possible. We can be perfect in holiness. Like the Pharisees, we are to separate ourselves from the world's sinful values. But unlike the Pharisees, we are to be devoted to God's desires rather than our own and carry His love and mercy into the world. We can be perfect in maturity. We can't achieve Christ-like character and holy living all at once, but we must grow toward maturity and wholeness. I wouldn't expect some behavior from our grandchildren, Tanley Ransom and, and, and Reagan, as I would from our adult kids. It's different expectation. And just as we expect different behavior from a baby, a child, or a teenager, and an adult, so God expects different behavior from us, depending on our stage of spiritual development. We can be perfect in love as well. 
We can seek to love others as completely as God loves us. And it starts with a pure heart. And love out of that pure heart shows people an incredible story. We can be perfect if our behavior is appropriate for our maturity level. Perfect yet with much room to grow. We always have room to grow. Our tendency to sin must never deter us from striving to be more like Christ. Christ calls all of his disciples to excel, to rise above mediocrity, and to to mature in every area, becoming just like him. I believe we need to realize that perfection isn't something that is a a, a performance. We're not going to have perfect performance. We're going to make mistakes. It's how you react to that performance and how you respond when there's times where you are called on the carpet and you're going, oh, I did make a mistake. What's your response then? Come up with an excuse or agree with God? Yeah, you're right. (laughs) I was wrong there. I need to grow in, in, in my relationship and to move forward in that way. I believe one of the main keys to being a peacemaker is understanding the importance of loving your enemies. That's one of the key things. I want to close with a a beautiful true story I found this last week, a story that I think shows how we should love those who oppose us. It's written from a mother's perspective. She says, baseball for our family is a loved and cherished sport. All three of our Four children played, beginning with T-Ball. The baby of the family, Rowdy, nice name, started playing ball in the front yard with his daddy at the age of two years old. So by the time he was four, Rowdy was more than ready to play. I remember one game when Rowdy was six. He was on the preacher's, no, pitcher's mound. (laughs) He's on the pitcher's mound. They were winning and Rowdy was thrilled and he was really serious about this game. There was a child on the other team who suffered from Down syndrome. He came up to bat, and because he wasn't fast enough to get to first base, he always batted last. Every time the boy struggled to get to first, Rowdy would watch his own teammates get him out easily. At uh, at the little boy's last turn to bat, he hit the ball straight to Rowdy on on the pitcher's mound. Now Rowdy reached down to get it, and then it was like a light went on in his head. He bobbled the ball and then kicked it around with his feet, The boy ran for all he was worth and head hanging down and and made it to first. I stood there watching my son fumble with the ball. My friend Lola, whose son played on the same team, noticed what was happening too. The boy ran on towards second. Rowdy continued to act like he couldn't get a hand on the ball as the boy made it to third. We stood there, both of us crying, for Rowdy was showing us that there are more important things in life than making an out. He was exhibiting compassion in the truest sense. Rowdy's teammates were screaming at him, but eventually followed his lead. Rowdy just smiled and watched the little boy run toward home. He ran across home plate with a grin as big as Texas on his face. It was the first time he had ever scored in his whole life, and he was so proud. His daddy ran out to him at home plate, and you should have seen their faces. That boy scored so much more than a run that day. It was a special moment in time for each and every person there. What a wonderful world it would be if we all could be as compassionate as Rowdy and his teammates were that day. I've never been a prouder mother than I was on that day. Rowdy still plays baseball. He pitches and is very good at it. But that was a run worth remembering.
So that's a kid who showed love to someone who opposed him. All too often, we put our kids into situations where other kids are considered the enemy. This boy's willingness to let the enemy run the bases inspired his teammates to do the same. And the lives of all who were there that day were affected. What are you doing to be a peacemaker? What are you doing to show that to others around you? Are you still stuck on the eye for eye and tooth for tooth? (laughs) Are you stuck on getting even? Maybe you need to go the extra mile. Maybe you need to give the cloak. These things we need to consider as Jesus taught us in, in his word, and we need to live it out. What are you doing to be a peacemaker? And God knows we need peacemakers these days. People who are not willing to just go up and fight for all they're worth just because they're ready to fight. But being a peacemaker, wherever you're at, showing those you don't really probably agree with or like very much, the love of Christ. There's many avenues to do that, many ways of doing that. And I trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart about that, what that looks like for you. What does it look like for you to be a peacemaker these days? Who is, who is God bringing to your mind right now that you probably need to show love to? You probably need to reach out that olive branch, hand it out to them, be a peacemaker in this situation. I trust that, that God is bringing someone to your mind, maybe more than one to be able to put this into practice. May we have the courage and faith to keep our eyes upon Jesus and open for these kinds of opportunities. May God be glorified as we love our enemies. And we'll look to show Christ's love to those around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We're going to have the worship team come on up and lead us in the last couple songs. And as they do, just uh, let the Holy Spirit continue to speak to your heart about what you've heard, God's Word, His principles here today, and be ready to put it into practice. Maybe maybe you need to spend some time praying. God, God wants to talk to your heart, and you need to do that. You can pray, come at the altar if you want as well too, but just then spend some time with God in, in this moment as we lead you in the last couple of songs.